This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, and John. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with David Daly. David is a journalist, the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com, and the author of Earmuffs, Rat Fucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. During our conversation, David talks about the Watershed 2010 Red Map Initiative, short for the Redistricting Majority Project, and how gerrymandering has essentially rigged U.S. congressional elections. He also talks about the second-order consequences of the success of REDMAP, that our political system increasingly incentivizes political extremism and disincentivizes compromise and working across the aisle. David believes that gerrymandering is an existential threat to our democracy, and I tend to agree with him. This subject reminds me of the Charlie Munger quote, show me the incentives and I will show you the outcome. To me, gerrymandering isn't a partisan issue. We owe it to ourselves to have a republic that has fair elections, and we should rightly fear what's likely to happen to our society if we don't. I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Daly. Dave Daly, um, wanted to say again, it's great to meet you. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for quite a while and talk about the subject for quite some time. So um, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me, Dan. You got it. Um, I want to get into the book that you wrote. Um, a number of years ago about gerrymandering specifically. But I thought just to give the listeners some background about you know, your story and what brought you to being interested in the subject in the first place, you know, I would love to know what that story is too. H- how did someone like yourself get interested in the subject to the point where you thought it merited spending a significant chunk of your professional career writing an, a, a, f- a full-length book about the subject and describing it in detail. What, what's that background story for you? It's really funny because I never imagined that I would be spending really any of my professional career thinking about gerrymandering. But um, 2013, I was editor of Salon. I was running our political coverage um, and it felt like every day I was assigning stories about just the absolute dysfunction in Washington. And it seemed like the stories coming out of the U.S. House every day just grew more extreme and um, gridlocked. I, there were something like 50 different votes to r- repeal Obamacare, which no matter what side of that argument people came down on, it wasn't going to happen. The president who it was named after was going to veto it. Um, You probably could have sent the message with two votes. 
Um, but the, we, we had also just had um, a shooting at Sandy Hook um, and uh, we were just about to have our first son and I'd grown up in Connecticut and the absolute inaction on guns. I wasn't naive as to think that um, the culture was going to change overnight, but it did seem to me that perhaps a massacre of, you know, the five, six, seven year olds might um, lead us to some kind of common sense conversation about this. And the combination of all of this led me one day to say, well, why didn't Democrats take back the U.S. House in 2012 when they returned Barack Obama to the White House, expanded their advantage in the U.S. Senate? Um, and when I looked at it, I learned that the Democrats had actually won. 1.4 million more votes in 2012, um, but Republicans held this 234-201 advantage in the House anyway. And I looked at some of the state delegations and I was like, wait a second, Wisconsin went uh, um, for Obama, but look at the congressional delegation. Pennsylvania went mm -hmm. for Obama in 2012 and yet sent 13 Republicans and five Democrats to Washington. Um, Michigan went for Obama and yet it was 9-5. And Gerrymandering at the time was not seen the way it is now. At that moment, people, when they talked about the impact of redistricting on, on partisan balance, they talked about the big sort. They said, well, you know, Democrats simply live in big cities. They're, they're more on top of each other. Republicans live more efficiently and more spread out. Um, and the more I looked at it, the, the less sure I was that the conventional wisdom on this was right. And I came across, uh, as I was digging into this, something called the Redistricting Majority Project, or REDMAP. Hmm. Um, and the Repu Republicans had an annual report that was posted online from an organization called the Republican State Leadership Conference. and. I had never heard of RedMap. I had never heard of the RSLC. But on this annual report, they were taking credit for the Republicans' ability to hold the House in 2012, even though they won fewer votes. They were taking credit for those delegations in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And I said, wait a second, I'm assigning a dozen stories a day on politics uh, I'm editing Steve Kornacki and Joan Walsh and Brian Boitler and all of these amazing people. We've never written about this. I've never even seen a story in another publication about this. And I said, well, we ought to be writing about gerrymandering, guys. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me like I was a flat earther. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the big sort, Dave. Uh, you know, um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there was a story here to be told um, that nobody else was telling. And um, I found an editor who agreed with me and, and off we went. Yeah. You know, I have had many conversations on this podcast about, you know, the state of American dis discourse, the state of American dialogue, the state of American culture. And I had a show last week that I did about what social media and social media addiction and the you know economic incentives of big tech 
fueled by controversy and outrage is doing to American culture. This is another aspect, I think, you know, if, if you know, a lot of the conversations that I try to have are, you know, an attempt to mitigate um, or at least note potential like existential risks to American society at large. And I, it dawned on me as I was doing research for this conversation over the, fa- the past few days that I think this is one of these you know, possibilities where we're going to get into the details of, of what has happened since 2010. But I know that you have noted this many times in the past that what ends up happening as the end result of gerrymandering is that the extremes are amplified and that having civil discourse across the aisle is no longer encouraged because of that fact. It might, it might be helpful for people who are listening to this, just give you an opportunity to define what we mean when we talk about gerrymandering and when it's done effectively, what the end result actually is. You know, We're going to talk about the Republican initiative since 2010. Um, what is that story? What, what, are, what are the details of what that actually means? Sure. Um, there's a lot there. Let me try to move through it as easily as I can, um, but we can slow down anytime you'd like. Um, redistricting is something that happens every 10 years. Yeah. Uh, mandated by the Constitution, um, demanded by the U.S. Supreme Court after the apportionment revolution of the 1960s, when states simply weren't doing it. And what you had were districts, both for state legislature and for Congress, that were wildly unequal in size, which meant that representation was wildly unequal. If you lived in a district with fewer people, uh, you simply had you know more say. Um, uh, your vote counted more. Um, and there is a really good reason to want to equalize population and to ensure one person, one vote. Um, and so we redistrict every 10 years um, out of fairness. Gerrymandering gets in the way of that notion of fairness. Um, a gerrymandered a district um, is redrawn in order to lock in advantage for one political party or another. For many years, this was done crudely, um, and it is now done with the most sophisticated computer mapping software and granular terabytes of big data uh, that um, can do this job quite surgically. Um, you can trace gerrymandering back to uh, Patrick Henry trying to uh, keep uh, James Madison out of our very first Congress from the state of Virginia. Uh, so as long as we've had politicians, they have uh, tried to draw their own lines and uh, choose their own voters. We are, however, unique among nations around the world, um, democracies, in, in allowing politicians to have this power. Um, other nations uh, have found ways to control it. But the two main tools of gerrymandering are cracking and packing. When you draw a gerrymandered district, a gerrymandered map, what you're trying to do is maximize the number of seats for your side. 
So you might draw lines that pack the other side's voters into one or two seats that they win overwhelmingly. Yeah. You give them those, but you take all of the other ones. Um, and if you're cracking, what you're going to do is try to draw lines right down the middle of the strongholds of your opponents, um, effectively diluting the votes of the other party and giving yourselves majorities in the other districts. Um, effectively, this is cheating. This is a method that serves to sever election results from the popular will. Um, so in a state like Pennsylvania, for example, in 2012, like we were just talking about, uh, Democrats won 100,000 more votes statewide. So that was not a huge advantage. I'd say that's probably 51.5%. But it didn't lead to anywhere close to 51.5% of the seats because Republicans were able to draw those lines so effectively. Uh, Republicans won 13 of 18 seats with 48% of the vote. So they won 71% of the seats with 48% of the vote. Democrats win 51% of the vote, but um, you know less than 30% of the seats. Uh, so gerrymandering allows a party to hold control of a congressional delegation or a state legislative chamber with fewer votes. What it also does is when you draw uncompetitive districts that only one side can win, you make the most important election, not the general election in November, but the most important election becomes the primary election, which tends to be a race to the left or a race to the right. It tends to be held in the summer. So very few people are actually taking part in that election. So it's pretty low turnout. Um, and it tends to attract the base voters regardless. So gerrymandering also helps push our politics uh, to polarized extremes. Um, it's not the sole cause of, of polarization. We've got, hmm. we've had polarization in this country for a long time, but gerrymandering exacerbates it. It, it pours gasoline onto it. And, it changes the nature of representation and it changes the incentives that our lawmakers have when they go to Washington or when they go to state capitals. If you know that compromise or consensus or, or reaching across the aisle is the thing that's going to get you a primary challenge, uh, you're a, a little less likely to behave in that way. Yeah. I want to read a quote uh, from your book and the, and the book uh, there are asterisks that block out the full title on the book cover itself, but the name of the book is called Rat Fucked. Uh, and Rat Fucked, I'll define it. Um, in politics, a rat fuck is a dirty deed done dirt cheap. You can trace the term. ACDC. What's that? I won't sing the ACDC. Yeah. <laughs> you can trace the term back as far as Edmund Wilson's The 20s. It was used decades later in All the President's Men. The story of how Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein uncovered the Watergate scandal and brought about the resignation of Richard Nixon. I want to add to that, and this is another quote from the book related to a key figure in the in the book itself, Chris Jankowski. And this is a, this is related to the work that Chris 
as I understand it, was the executive director of the Red Map Initiative. The quote is, and this is Chris learning this from a Times article, that 2010 is not just any election year. It is a crucial. It is crucial given that it is that this class of governors will be able to cha- to charge as their states draw congressional and state legislative districts as part of the reapportionment process after the after the next census. And given historical trends in midterm elections and the lopsided majority Democrats enjoy in Congress, this is in 2008 to 2008 after the Obama presidency, the possibility that Republicans could make gains in House races next year could give the party a psychological boost at the halfway point of Mr. Obama's turns. You know, this, you use the word incentives in your last answer. And as I was reading about the Red Map Initiative in your book itself, I was, you know, I and I've heard you say this in prior interviews as well that it is an audacious, astonishing, but largely understandable initiative. I mean, if you are viewing politics purely from a power play perspective, it actually surprised me that there hadn't been more of a push to do something like this in the past, and that it took up until 2010 to do that. There's one other one other quote I, I want to. Um, add in here because I think this might link into a concept that I was familiar with and I think other people might be familiar with too. Red Map's efforts were the most strategic, large, large-scale, and well-funded campaign ever to redraw the political map coast to coast with the express goal of locking in Republican control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Until this point, gerrymandering had been a tool to enhance an incumbent's chances of re-election or shiv a political enemy rascally politics as usual. Red Map played out, played out an altogether new and impressive scale. Call it the gender, gerrymandering shock and awe campaign or redistricting's Moneyball moment. Moneyball is the writer Michael Lewis's term for the strategy of using advanced analytics to identify undervalued baseball players developed by Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean, who realized that the only way to compete with wealthier teams like the Yankees was to outsmart them on the numbers side. I thought that was a brilliant observation that you made because that's exactly what I think was happening there. Um, I've heard you talk about this in prior interviews too, and I'd love to give you an opportunity as to in 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 practice what Red Ma- Red Maps Initiative focused on. Because as you allude to in that uh, story about how it's comparable to Moneyball, you know, it's really focusing. I think it was thirty million dollars on very important disproportionately important state races that would have an enormous effect on the outcome of future congressional races. Talk about what what the strategy was by RedMap in terms of what they were targeting specifically with that money. Moneyball is all about identifying undervalued assets and taking advantage of that, being smarter than the other side. And what Republicans understood what Chris Jankowski understood, the brilliance of Jankowski here, and you're right, it's, it's, in some ways it's, it's right in front of us in such yeah. a way that it's amazing that nobody had recognized this sooner. But what Jankowski understands is that if state legislatures draw most of these U.S. House districts and almost all of the state legislative districts around the country, why not? try to win control of all of these chambers and lock the other side out of the process of drawing lines. Um, 
So what REDMAP looked to do was to flip control of state legislative chambers in a redistricting year. We always know what those years are because they follow the census in years ending in zero. So 2008 was this huge historic Democratic wave election. But what Jankowski knew was that 2010 could be a more consequential election because it was a redistricting year. And so if Republicans could take control of state legislatures in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, Alabama, Georgia, um, Indiana, they would have the ability to lock the other side out of redistricting altogether, draw maps that would advantage themselves for the next 10 years, even as the Obama election seemed to announce the arrival of a new American uh, governing majority, right? People talked about the, the, the multiracial democratic majority that seemed likely to dominate American politics for the next generation. And RedMap was able to interrupt that. It didn't exactly happen. Um, it was a masterstroke in that Republicans recognized that these closely divided competitive states also had really closely divided state legislatures. So it didn't take much to flip them. Yeah. I keep coming back to, to Pennsylvania because it's it's such an important state. Um, just heading into the the 2010 election in Pennsylvania, the state house was 102 Democrats, 101 Republicans. You only had to flip a couple of seats in Pennsylvania to take control of the whole process, um, and it was it, it was really similar in those other states. Um, Red map involved targeting 107 state legislative races in 16 states. And by winning those races, Republicans were able to take control of all of those state legislative chambers. They were able to draw themselves huge advantages in the race for Congress. Um, and we can talk about this later if you'd like, but uh, even though Democrats win back the House in 2018, they did not effectively unravel really any of the Republican gerrymanders at the ballot box. But the, the Republicans also gave themselves control of these state legislatures, and they never lost control of a single state legislative chamber that they won in 2010 hmm. over the course of the next decade. They still have all of them, even as we talk today in 2022, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, those lines have stood for more than a decade, even in years in which Democratic candidates win hundreds of thousands more votes. Yeah. I want to add a, another quote to that, which is uh, something that I think you've, 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 you've touched on in, in that answer as well. So after Election Day 20, 2010, the transformation was complete. Commissions, 88, controlled twice as many seats as the Democrats, 44. Another 103 seats were drawn by both parties. The Republicans could draw 193 of their own. 
a party needs only 218 seats to control Congress. You know, this whole subject of talking about gerrymandering, I mean, frankly, I don't know what the percentages are in the country of how many people even know what that word means. I, I think it is probably more undoubtedly than it had been five or 10 years ago, because some people I think are waking up to how important the subject is in general. But to read the last two sentences of that quote again, the Republicans could draw 193 of their own. A party needs only 218 seats to, to control Congress. That just strikes me as an extremely important fact that I don't know most Americans are aware of. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I know it's a swing state. It's, it's always been relatively close. I grew up in, in the Rust Belt in northwestern Pennsylvania, which you know, swung for Trump in 2016, and it hadn't voted for a Democrat since Ronald Reagan. You know, when, when you, you know, we're sitting here in, in 2022 having this conversation, when you hear that quote that I just read to you, um, where are we now in terms of, you know, from an ethical perspective? I don't view any of this really as at root a partisan issue. This strikes me as something that is just a basic um, point of fairness that if you want to have a fair democracy, you have to allow for, it seems, I want you to speak to this, but you know, independent as best we can find them, commissions or committees to be able to design congressional races that can be fair and competitive. Um, how do you think about that subject now in terms of what the best and fairest way to handle this subject is? And if there happens to be a state or a process currently that you think should be roughly the model for the U.S. in general? Sure. Um, and you're right. It's a it's it's complicated, right? Because because both sides have done plenty of gerrymandering over the last 230 years. Um, there aren't really any redistricting angels. Um, but our launch into the modern steroid era of gerrymandering, the technological uh, computer surgical precise gerrymanders that we're seeing right now coincide with RedMap and they have really helped Republicans lock in um, enduring control of swing states even when they win fewer votes and has lasted for a long time. Um, so the the partisan impact of this um, has been has been pretty clear over the course of that of that period. Um, but there are obviously much better ways to do this. Um, you can look at a state like Iowa, which has a trusted civil service agency, which it draws these lines. And I know it sounds crazy, right? You know, trusted state bureaucrats <laughs> by Democrats and Republicans in a state like Iowa, but it's true. Um, and they have done this effectively since the 1980s um, and uh, with limited controversy. Um, occasionally the, the legislature will reject a map but when that happens, they don't get to draw the map. It goes back to the agency to, to take another shot at it. Um, you can look at a state like California, or, um, which has got a citizens commission that um, has done a really good job over the course of its, of its um, 
uh, two cycles. That one started back in 2011. And um, you have seen more competitive uh, races in in California than you uh, have in just about any other state. Um, as a result, um, in in the in the decade of the two thousands in California, um, I think one incumbent lost in in five election cycles. So that's uh, probably more than two hundred and fifty races, and you had you know one person go down and. Um, uh, certainly in 2012, you saw a, a big shakeup. Um, you had pretty competitive races in California in 2018 when Democrats won back the House. And then in 2020, Republicans made yeah, pretty good gains in California. Um, so what you have seen is a map that is a little more responsive to the public will, which I think is what you're asking for out of Pennsylvania, right? I mean, in a year in which Republicans win more votes, they should win more seats. In a year where Democrats win more votes, they should win more seats. It shouldn't be that complicated. Um, it's it, it certainly shouldn't be predetermined a decade earlier by uh, lines that uh, partisans drew. Um, and if you look around the world, uh, every other country's got a better way of doing this. <laughs> than we do. Uh, you can look at a country like Mexico, which also has, a, you know, a civil service, um, you know, drawing these districts. If the politicians want to mess with the maps, they have to statistically show how they've improved them based on, 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 on specific criteria. Um, and then if you look elsewhere in Europe, um, you have systems that are much more proportional. And, you know, I think that that is really the direction we ought to be heading towards. I mean, I, I think that the best solution here is the one that Don Beyer, a congressman from Virginia, has put forth called the Fair Representation Act that would effectively end gerrymandering by drawing larger multi-member districts and using ranked choice voting to, to um, uh, select um, the U.S. House and what that would do is 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 it would it, it would erase the influence of of each individual line and you would you would end up with um democrats and republicans being elected from every district i mean i live in massachusetts and massachusetts um hasn't sent a republican to congress since 1994 there's, there's plenty of republicans here though right i mean we've got a republican governor um, we only had one Democratic governor here since the days of Michael Dukakis. Um, but the way that people live, it's just a 60-40 state. Um, but that doesn't mean that the 40% should have zero representation. Um, so if you, if you were to draw a more proportional map that had a 60-40 delegation from Massachusetts, but also the maps in, in Kansas and Oklahoma and, and Missouri might be 60-40 the other way. You would you would suddenly see a different Congress, I think. You know, we talked earlier about extremism and and the way politicians are incentivized. I mean uh, bridge builders that I think is really what our politics misses. Um and if you suddenly had some New England Republicans again, if you had some um, Midwestern, Southwestern Democrats who were able to sort of um, 
I'm not talking about kind of, you know, a mushy centrism, but um, yeah. oftentimes they provide the oil or the grease uh, that allows for people to have conversations. Yeah. The uh, I want to just underline, I think a word that again, we've already talked about, but I think is so important, which is, which is incentives. And there's a great um, Charlie Munger line that I love, which is that, you know, the iron rule of nature is that you get what you reward for. And that if you want ants, you put sugar on the floor. He's big on that in business. And I think it's also true in basically every, every system that incentives are largely to blame or to be attributed to the behavior that you end up seeing as the end result. And, you know, when I was reading about Chris Jankowski, it's hard for me to blame him. That's his job, right? And uh, there's a, another quote that I love by Naval Ravikant that the test of any good system is you build a system and you hand it over to your enemies to run for the next decade. I think when you have that kind of a mentality about incentives and the importance of incentives and building a system with that mentality, you're more apt to uh, build it in the spirit of fairness. Um, I want to talk about the 2016 election specifically, because I know I've heard you say this in prior interviews that you know, to some degree, as I understand it, you view the Trump victory in 2016. And I have to say just personally, I was living in California at the time, um, flew back to Erie, my hometown, to volunteer for Hillary, who I was fairly confident was going to win and probably would win overwhelmingly. But I had been following some of the data that I knew it wasn't a slam dunk per se. And Erie County was overwhelmingly, in terms of visible public support, it was probably 10 Trump signs for every one Hillary sign. I think a lot of people in my orbit were just totally in denial about what was <laughs> right in front of them. Um, and I'd love to give you an opportunity to, to speak about the Trump phenomenon as it relates to what took place in 2010 and the gerrymandering um, procedures that were implemented by these Republican-controlled state houses since then. Um, talk about that if you can. How, how does Trump connect to any of this? I think redistricting helped break the Republican Party and it helped usher in a different extreme and it helped usher it, it, it helped smash the establishment and unleash populist forces that Trump came along and swept up the pieces of and was able to assemble his own coalition and hijack the party out from under them. Um, redistricting created a Frankenstein's monster. Um, and I don't think Chris Jankowski saw that coming. Yeah. Um, Chris is a brilliant strategist um, and I don't blame him either. I mean, his job is to win elections for his side. Um, he, he did that perfectly. Um, and if Democrats didn't understand the possibilities of that year, 
which they did not. Um, it's political incompetence of the highest order, and um, we're all living with the consequences of, of that ineptitude. Uh, but what I would say happened is this. Um, Republicans created this congressional map and state legislative map by constructing a fantasy version of the nation. If America was becoming younger, less white, less rural um, in 2012, if all of those demographic trends were, were taking place, what Republicans drew was a, a bizarro up down, uh, upside down version of that in which the nation was becoming older, whiter, more conservative, less educated. Um, and from those districts, um, you began to see the emergence of the House Freedom Caucus. You begin to see the emergence of the House Caucus that shuts down the government in 2013 over Obamacare. Um, in in actual America in 2012, Mitt Romney loses to Barack Obama by about four percentage points. But in the suicide caucus, freedom caucus world, um, Romney wins by 30. Um, they created a different universe um, and sent those people into power in Washington. Uh, I mean, I think the best example of this comes from North Carolina, uh, where Republicans were determined to draw a 10-3 map in this 51-49 state. Um, and they were able to do so by, by, taking, by taking the city of Asheville out in the Western mountains, uh, the largest city in the Western a part of North Carolina, but uh, surrounded by conservative mountain towns. Um, and, and Asheville's kind of a, a hippie vegetarian college town. Yeah. Um, and so they drew a line right down the middle of, of Asheville. They cracked it in half. Uh, and they attached half of those hippies and vegan cafes into one district and half the feminist bookstores into another. Um, and they created two conservative districts. Um, th that district in the previous decade had swung back and forth. It was, it was, it was a Republican in, in 2002 and 04. Uh, it, it flips to the Democrats in 06 and 08 and 10 um, out of frustration over the Iraq war and the economy. So, you know, it, it, it went back and forth as a district might. Um, it was represented by um, uh, a man named Heath Schuler, who uh, football fans might remember as a backup quarterback for the Washington uh, uh, football team and the University of Tennessee, um, but also um, one of the more conservative members of Congress. So he, he kind of fit that district. But even a conservative Democrat like Schuler took one look at these lines and said, well, I can't I can't win here. Um, you had a race on the Republican side, um, you know, six, seven, eight candidates because they understood that the um, election was going to be determined in the Republican primary. Um, and that primary was won by um, a man who outberthered the entire field, um, who when asked um, about Obama's birth certificate, vowed that he would send him back to Kenya or wherever it is he comes from. Um, that man's name was Mark Meadows. Yeah. 
Mark Meadows in that moment, his rise to political power is 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 underway. Uh, it's created by gerrymandering. Mark Meadows doesn't win that district if not for gerrymandering. Um, Meadows goes to Washington, and it's Meadows who who undoes John Boehner by calling for the parliamentary motion to vacate the, the chair. Um, it's Meadows who orchestrates the uh, 2013 uh, shutdown over over Obamacare. Um, you know, Paul Ryan and John Boehner are are you know deeply establishment Republican uh, figures who are actively involved in the RSLC and the gerrymanders that uh, that followed. They had no idea that these maps would empower the far right of the caucus and would ultimately push both of them out of power. That the Republican base would become so up in arms over, over the Boehner-Ryan approach that in 2015 and 2016, in, in the Republican presidential primary, there were 17 candidates. This was a pretty rich and deep Republican field. It included successful governors. It included U.S. senators on the rise. Um, and None of them caught fire with the Republican base. Donald Trump is what that base wanted. They didn't want Jeb Bush or John Kasich or or Marco Rubio or even Ted Cruz um, or or Mike Huckabee or uh, Rick Santorum or any of the other people who stood on that stage. They wanted what they had been empowered to seek as the establishment crumbled, largely, uh, I would suggest, because of the Frankenstein's monster that redistricting set loose. Yeah, it's an incredible story, and it's one that you know I really was not particularly familiar with until I started researching for this conversation. I had an, an intuition that you know I knew I knew this is an important subject, but I didn't know the the details and the effect you know, in the, from 2010 to 2016 and, and beyond that this fact has had on the country and the way that, you know, politics has played out. I know in 2020, as I understand it, you know, the Democrats had caught wind of what RedMap had done, that it had been successful. And my understanding is that while the Republicans initially in RedMap's first go around in 2010 spent 30 million dollars successfully the democrats upped that to 75 million for 2020 but the republicans had like something like 125 or 130 million for their own second go to try to control the redistricting lines i'd love for you to talk about the 2020 year because as i understand it, your book is really about the 2010s and the effects that that has had in that era, we're not that far away from the 2020 presidential election and the congressional elections. What's the story in general as to what happened in that year? The story is that those lines have held for a decade and Republicans still have the power to draw the vast majority of U.S. House districts and still control 
the state legislatures in most of the states where they won them a decade ago. Um, it's really, really hard to beat a modern gerrymandered map. Um, a high-tech precision gerrymander has not been beatable in this country in the last decade, even when a party wins hundreds of thousands more votes. Um, and so we are still we are still living in red map nation. Um, now, Democrats in 2020 had become fully woke to the uh, the the need to win back state legislative chambers. They invested a lot of money and tried to find great candidates and understood that the next decade would be on the line. Um, they couldn't win back any of those chambers, not in North Carolina, not in Wisconsin, not, not in Ohio, not in Michigan, not in Pennsylvania, uh, not in Florida. Um, it just, it just wasn't doable, um, on these maps. And so what Democrats have been able to do, um, is they've been able to win back seats at the table, by winning, for example, governor's races in, in, in Pennsylvania, in, um, in Wisconsin. Uh, so if you've got, a, that has kind of broken the monopoly that, you know, one party has had. And um, um, you tend to get, you know, better balanced maps when both parties have a seat at the table. Yeah. Uh, For yeah. But, um, but Republicans, I believe, control something in the ballpark of 186 seats heading into the cycle. So that's only seven fewer than last time. Democrats are up into the low 80s. Um, but, you know, Republicans still have a pretty a big advantage. Yeah. The, uh, you, know, you just spoke about having a seat at the table. And I, I would love to get into the details of what power looks like and in the room where it happens when these lines are being drawn you know take a state for example like pennsylvania if pennsylvania is controlled wholesale by you know hypothetically a republican governor and republicans who are controlling the state house in a situation like that who are the people in the room how, how do decisions actually get made in a specific state where there is you know, control by one party and in the relevant positions of power. Yeah. And every state is different. And, and Pennsylvania is complicated in that the, uh, the state legislative maps and the congressional maps have a different process. Um, but effectively, when one party is in control of the process, they can push through whatever kind of map that they would like. Um, and the other side, can't really do much about it other than try and take it to court, which is a, a tougher road than it was a few years ago. And now that the U.S. Supreme Court has closed the federal courts to these claims, they have to uh, try and litigate this in state court. Um, but when both sides have got a seat at the table, then both sides have to talk to each other. Um, and the maps have to be made in some spirit of, of compromise. That doesn't always mean more competitive districts. It might mean, you know, a bipartisan gerrymander that, you know, locks in a bunch of seats for one side and a bunch for the other side. 
Um, but, you know, again, when both sides are in the room, you tend to end up with a map that looks a little bit more reflective of the overall breakdown of the state. And is there a typical breakdown of who is in that room? Is it, you know, the governor, the speaker of the house, you know, I'm sure it's different in various different states, but who tends to be the individuals who are the people actually making these decisions? Um, I would say what you really have, the most powerful person is the map maker. Hmm. Um, and these are highly trained demographers, um, expert in the state's political geography. Um, and working effectively for you know one side or the other. Um, ordinarily in these states, yes, it's the legislative leadership that is going to play the dominant role. Um, but oftentimes these maps come out of uh, redistricting uh, committees in the legislature. Um, that's where they begin to, to get drafted, maybe, you know, elections uh, committees. Um, and they kind of make their way up like any other piece of legislation. Um, and then a governor might have veto power over that map, um, which would mean that the governor has to be listened to. Um, you know, in a state where the governor does, does not have veto power or where a veto can be overridden, um, in Kentucky, for example, um, uh, you don't need two thirds to override a governor's veto. All you need is a bare majority. Um, so Republicans uh, can effectively draw the map that they want. And the Democratic governor has said, I'm going to veto it, but it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> um, you know, in Kansas, um, there's a Democratic governor, uh, but Republicans have got a supermajority in both chambers. Um, so they can do what they would like. Um, in North Carolina, the governor does not have a say in redistricting. Um, so the, the legislature is able to do effectively whatever they would like. Um, the, uh, state courts have stepped in um, when, a, when maps are too extreme, as we just saw again earlier this month, but uh, that there is no veto power there. So, so certainly every state um, has got this process designed a little bit differently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, as, as, as I've learned more about this and I'm thinking about the average citizen who is busy, is trying to stay abreast of the news in general, you know, this stuff is complicated and it varies by state. It's difficult to really get your head wrapped around what the, what the real, you know, civilly or ethically objectionable behavior is specifically to be able to target that in an individual state and to know what your opinion should be in a given state as to how things should change. But I think from a 30,000 foot level, it just seems like there is an ethical aspect to this of basic fairness that people I think beyond their own politics should be able to wrap their head around and get behind. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about Republican initiatives and I want to be f fair about this because 
I don't aim to have uh, conversations that are partisan or uh, are fueling polarizations on on this podcast. And you know, to me, this is not something that is in that realm. Um, I would like to think that I would feel the same way if the inverse were also true. That um, you know, I. Uh, have voted for democratic presidents my entire life, but I increasingly am finding myself feeling like a, uh, a person without a, a real party and is more, you know, interested in trying to get people just talking to each other again. Um, and finding what is great about America outside of day-to-day political news cycles how do you, you know, in your research for the book, I would be curious to know, I think what, what tipped me off to gerrymandering being important was as Obama was leaving office, I think he was getting more aware of how important this was. And I remember him saying, as he was going up on the cusp of becoming an ex-president, that this was something that he wanted to spend more time working on. You know, are there other politicians that are prominent who you know, are willing to admit that this is a problem. They're kind of going against the power incentives, but from a citizen fairness perspective, are open enough to identify this as being a big reason why the country is tilting in the direction it seems to be tilting right now in, in its discourse and its its polarization. Are there people that you know, you would point listeners to to research or learn about that you think are pretty fair-minded about this. It's a good question. You know, I mean, um, and I don't mean to approach this from a partisan perspective either. I don't. I, yeah. I don't have my. I mean, I I edited Salon for many years. So my politics are my politics, but um, I don't have my my um, my hand on the scale here in this in this book, and I've been I've been very critical of of Democratic gerrymanders in New York and Illinois and Maryland. Um, they are just as anti small D democratic, um, just as repulsive. Um, they haven't had the same impact. However, uh, the num the you know the impact in those states is is much is much smaller. Um, so the the overwhelming amount of gerrymandering in this country has been done over the course of the last decade and a half by by one party. Um, but the also that the most extreme gerrymanders, are the ones that counteract the will of the people, um, you know, Maryland and New York are still blue states. Um, the gerrymander there had a couple seats that wouldn't have been there. Um, in, in a state like Pennsylvania, it turns it turns what is probably a 5149 blue state into a 7129 red state. Um, after the 2018 elections, there were 59 million Americans who lived in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature were controlled by the party that won fewer votes <laughs> that year, which is a wild number. But yeah. uh, all 59 million of, of those people lived in states where Democratic candidates won more votes and Republicans held control of the chamber. So it's it's it simply hasn't been close. Um, and so the journalist in me wants to be objective, but also not to sort of fall for a, a both sides. Yeah. And it's like a 90-10 a, a 
kind of influence right now. Um, but you're right. I mean, in that it's not about the politics. And when you bring this to the average voter, they say, wait a second, what do you mean? The politicians get to draw their own lines and to effectively choose winners and losers? That's not right. Um, and so when this is on the ballot box, you know, in 2018, um, voters w- had constitutional initiatives or state ballot a referenda in Ohio, in Utah, in Missouri, in Colorado, in Michigan, uh, and soon after that in Virginia. Um, and this wins. The redistricting reform unites voters every place. Yeah. I mean, a 61% victory in Michigan, you know, uh, um, um, uh, more than 70% in Ohio, um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it even wins in Utah. Um, so, you know, red states, blue states, you know, purple states, it doesn't matter. We all hate gerrymandering. Um, and it's, it's something I think that we can come t- together on. Uh, are there politicians who have been strong on this across party lines. Um, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was governor of California, uh, creates the, and really drives the creation of the independent commission there. Um, uh, I think the work Eric Holder has done on the democratic side, a lot of people probably view that as, as exceptionally partisan, but I mean, I think that Holder has um, a real sense of fairness here. I don't think he's in favor of trying to draw lines that, that benefit his side. I think he, he believes his side wins if there's fair maps. Um, um, and John Kasich, I think, has come around on this. I mean, Kasich signed into law the egregious gerrymander in Ohio in 2010, but I think he's, he's, he's come around and kind of understood um, Larry Hogan in Maryland has been pretty good. The trouble with a lot of these guys is if you go to, if you go to, you know, Holder and say, what about Maryland? He, he tries to turn it into something else. And if you go to Hogan and say, well, what about Ohio? He tries to turn it into something else. It would be, it would be nice if there were more people who would come out and say, this is wrong. And this is bad no matter who does it and where it is and we're against it no matter what yeah it's a point of principle yeah um and i think in the spirit of fairness and transparency i'd love to give you an opportunity to to talk about that in a little bit more detail you you mentioned the gerrymandering uh that you think is anti-lower deed democratic in places like maryland and new york um and and again I, i i view this seemingly as a an obvious just power move a power play to try to cement um a party's position of authority and and power in a state um what what is the story about how democrats have behaved in this related to gerrymandering in places like new york and maryland historically um well new york was drawn by courts last cycle but uh democrats have had control of the process this time um, and they just drew a, a map that um, effectively runs roughshod over a commission and it imposes a 22 to 4 uh, Democratic map in the state of New York. I mean, you know, it's a blue state, but uh, 22 to 4. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think New York is 85-15 by any 
stretch of the imagination. Um, Maryland um, in 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 2010, um, right after 2010, was a 6-2 Democratic state, and Republicans effective. Uh, I'm sorry, Democrats effectively uh, turned a seat in Maryland, the seventh district, inside out. They they uh, moved more people in and out of that district than any other district in the country in order to create a seven-one map there. They they thought about an eight-zero map and um, thought it might put a couple of incumbents in jeopardy. It, it, it might kind of slice the margins too thin. You, you don't want a, a gerrymander to backfire and become a dummy mander. Um, so they went with a seven-one map instead. Um, but um, you know, I I. I think it's complicated um, when when Republicans control more states and have done this for the last decade more aggressively. I can understand how Democrats say, "Well, we can't live on principle alone and unilaterally disarm and be at a greater disadvantage." Um, what Democrats tried to do was pass a law in Congress that would ban partisan gerrymandering. Um, and that law didn't generate any Republican support and, and failed with the filibuster. Um, and Democrats and good government groups went to the U.S. Supreme Court and tried to create standards that would um, put an end to partisan gerrymandering. And the US Supreme Court in a 5-4 party line decision in 2019 said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, uh, In fact, we're gonna close the federal courts entirely to these claims. Um, So when you've gone to the courts and the courts say no, when you've tried to pass a law in Congress and the other side unanimously says no, you're not left with a lot of choices other than unilateral disarmament. And uh, that's not, that's not a great choice either. Yeah. And so everything just gets worse. Yeah. And I want to talk about now and, you know, we're having this conversation early in 2022. This is a midterm election year. That will be taking place about six or seven months from now. You know, as as you think about this subject, and you just went through some of the the recent history related to attempts to introduce some additional fairness in the subject. Where are we as a country at this point in terms of areas for potential hope for change um, related to gerrymandering, and uh, you know. You can take that however you would like. If there are rising political stars that you think could, you know, carry the the mantle for something like this, um, if there are new initiatives that are being brought about, if there's just public awareness that you think is being you know, increased over time, how, how do you how do you think about where we are related to this in terms of areas for possibilities for hope in changing some of this, you know, I think as both you and I would agree, unfairness in the system. It's a really 
difficult question. And um, I would like to leave people without um, the desire to slash their wrists I, <laughs> uh, or to, or to drink hemlock. Um, um, and so, you know, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a book called Unrigged uh, the, after the 2018 cycle that tried to talk about how citizens are battling back to save democracy in, in many states. And I think that there are some uh, terrific examples of this. If you look at the uh, citizen drive in Michigan to, um, to create an independent a commission there, um, it not only won with 61% of the vote, but right now you've just had, you know, fair maps um, enacted in Michigan by this commission for the uh, very first time. So it's a tremendous success story. Um, I tell the story in there of Reclaim Idaho, which is, you know, a very you know nonpartisan movement in Idaho, which uh, has tried to um, force some change in, in an extreme one-party state. Um, and they were able to expand Medicaid at the ballot box. Um, you, you, you don't uh, think of that happening in a bright red state, but they won with 62% of the vote in 2018. Um, and so when a pandemic swept through the country in, in 2020, in a state that really relies on rural hospital and rural healthcare, an additional 70,000 people were covered mm. and able to, you know, have healthcare. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that there is more awareness right now of um, of of the of the problems and the crisis facing our democracy than we've had. You know, w when I wrote this book and it, it came out in 2016 and the paperback in 2017, um, it was a little bit lonely out here uh, talking about these issues. Um, and now there's a lot more voices that have been raised, which is terrific. Um, but, and there's always a, but, um, I think this is a dire, serious five alarm moment for our country. Um, and gerrymandering has in many ways helped create it. Um, we are staring down the barrel of a 2024 presidential election coming after the events that we saw on January 6th this year, in which it's entirely possible that state legislatures in these close swing states are not going to respect the popular vote of the people, and they're going to nominate competing uh, slates of electors um, and sort of push us towards constitutional crisis. Um, and if there's a constitutional crisis after the 2024 presidential election along the lines that we narrowly averted in 2020, it's going to be because of legislatures in close states that have been gerrymandered and packed with extremists who are not willing to recognize the results of an election in places like Georgia or Arizona or Wisconsin, three states that um, all went for Biden in 2020, but by a margin of about 44,000 votes um, in total. So 
we are we are right on the verge of um i think something that is is dangerous um on top of sort of all of the minority rule that's just baked into the system through the u.s senate um through the electoral college um when you add into that um this deeply undemocratic small d inequity in the way that we elect our 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 state legislatures and the u.s house the branches of government that are supposed to be closest and most responsive to the people um they really are responsive only to the map makers right now and we have to get a handle on this and we have to be talking about it yeah i think you're right and i think it's it's a rather terrifying prospect of what might be coming our way in the next few years. You know, I, I know Bill Maher has called this a slow moving coup um, as a, as a possibility for what, what might be happening in, in 2024. You know, if you're an, a citizen who listens to something like this is somewhat familiar with the, the state of affairs, you know, what's your top recommendation for them in terms of what they can do as an individual to do the best they can, given the you know, overwhelming structural situation that they are uh, trying to fight against, to, to help to add some reason and sanity to the situation to prevent you know, what I view as a possibility of a real existential threat to the country. I mean, you call it a, a constitutional crisis. I think they're basically the same thing. It's it's calling into question the system itself. Um, what do you say to you know even family members or to friends or just citizens that you might never meet but are familiar with your work as to what can be done or what they might think about doing to do they be, the best that they can to mitigate the risk for something like that? I think we have to be aware of how profound the risk is first. I think we have to be talking about how yeah. serious this is. And I'm really glad we're able to do that today. Um, I think that we have to, we have to talk about what the will of the people means, right? I mean, all of these, all of these founding documents of the country talk, talk about um, the will of the people. Um, and what we have created is an electoral system in which the will of the people doesn't much matter. Um, and is that a legitimate representative democracy? Um, and I think we have to decide what kind of a country it is that we want to live in. And, um, you know, when I say sometimes that we're, we're headed down the road towards a competitive authoritarianism of the likes that you see in a place like Hungary, uh, I, I sound perhaps a little unhinged. And so I say this very calmly <laughs> uh, in order to, <laughs> to sound rational. But um, I fear that that is a very real possibility for us over the course of these next several years. If we're not talking about this, I think we need to build a political coalition in this country around the idea of representative democracy and majority rule. Um, and perhaps some of us have to stop fighting about some of the other things 
and and form alliances with other people who believe in the idea of democracy mm. uh, because there are powerful elements within our political system that are trying to enact something much closer to authoritarianism. Um, and this is a moment for all of us who believe in an American system of, of government that is responsive to the people, um, that all political power is inherent in the people uh, to, you know, come together um, and, and, to, and to step up and, and um, protect it um, because it is, it, is, it is at threat. Yeah. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and I'd love to ask you just a few more questions related to, to this. You know, maybe first I would love to start with whether there are any initiatives or political leaders that you feel like are on the right side of history related to this subject that are attempting to create a movement or a groundswell of support for, uh, you know, what to my mind is, right, we all have political leanings, but I remember Obama saying this in his farewell address that the most important role for someone in the society is the role of citizen. And that it kind of baked into the description of what it means to be an American citizen is to have an allegiance to certain ideas of liberty and fairness and freedom. Um, I've had conversations on the show about freedom of speech. This is the first conversation I've had about gerrymandering specifically. But I think as we've outlined in this conversation, it it is certainly exacerbating the extremes and is a threat um, in my mind to the America that I kind of grew up believing in. What you know, does anyone come to mind? Are there any initiatives that you see as having uh, some initial momentum to pushing back against some of these, like you said, competitive authoritarian tendencies? Um, what in your mind, if anything, are are those movements, movements or those political figures that might be something to consider getting involved with or at least know about? That's a good question. I mean, um, I wish I, I wish I heard more voices on the Republican side talking about these issues. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a handful of, of, of folks, but um, it's been, it's been small. Um, And, you know, certainly, certainly on the democratic side, um, it's been, you know, it's been um, they've advanced these bills, but they've been bills that have not attracted any any bipartisan support for whatever reason. Um, so it's it's tricky, I think, to kind of look at the at the political system for these these folks. Um, I think. I think I think Common Cause and the League of Women Voters uh, and other kind of you know nonpartisan good government folks have done really good work on on bringing lawsuits um, and winning those lawsuits in 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 state and federal courts, um, either on partisan or racial gerrymandering. Um, the ACLU has been active in those. Um, um, if you look at what's been happening in in Ohio and North Carolina and in Alabama. Um, yeah, um, Reverend Barber uh, and his moral 
uh, Mondays in North Carolina. Uh, the head of the uh, Poor People's Campaign, I think, has been has been um, a real a real a real moral integrity. Uh, a leader of integrity on on this, um, but it's tricky, you know. I don't. I I, I wish we had. Uh, it it would be tremendous to me if John Boehner and Barack Obama wanted to come forward on this t- together yeah. and say we understand what gerrymandering has done because we we did it and we lived with it and we saw the consequences and we need to step back from this abyss. Um, I don't know if Boehner has any, has any, um, any stature in today's party. Right. Um, But as a former, you know, Boehner, Orion, as these, as these former speakers of the house who saw firsthand what happens and how ungovernable a system under the sway of extreme, the toxic gerrymandering can be, I think they would have some, um, some, you know, moral hold or at least an ability to, you know, get on CNN and talk about this. Uh, But instead that they've all been active in, you know, partisan efforts to, you know, keep gerrymandering further. Um, So it kind of makes you uh, throw your hands up up in the air. Um, I think that's what it's going to take. You know, I mean, I think it's going to take Republican leaders understanding that they birthed the Frankenstein's monster um, to help fix this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a final question, Dave, but first I want to just thank you for the work you've done on this subject, because I think the first thing that you have to do in attempting to course correct is tell the truth about the circumstance that we happen to be in. And I think you've done a lot to raise the public consciousness of the seriousness of the situation and the, providing the, the details of the history of how we got here. Um, so thank you for that. And I'd love to close with you know, your thoughts about maybe both what you think is the likely near-term outcome here politically in the U.S., and the you know optimistic better or best case scenario that even if unlikely could happen you know i'm i'm wondering if you think it's likely to get worse before it gets better uh that seems to be a theme i receive from a lot of people that i talk to these days but if you could in closing talk about that in terms of what you think is the most likely you know political outcome in the next let's say 2 to six years in the country related to the second order consequences of gerrymandering. And then just to add a little bit of optimism, what you think a better or best case scenario might look like. I think we're in a lot of trouble. Um, I think that if it gets worse, it's not going to get better anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Because if it gets worse, um then you're going to see contr- one party control locked in not only through the political system but also the courts and it will be um effectively checkmate um 
And I think we're closer to that checkmate moment than anybody wants to accept or that anybody is really talking about. Um, and I think, uh, I don't mean to be a fear monger or anything else, but, um, you know, the, there's that nuclear clock <laughs> that people yep. have, that the atomic scientists have had. If we had a democracy clock, we would be, we're on the verge of midnight. Um, and it's, 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 um, so an awful lot is at stake in these 2022 midterms. Um, and, um, I would like to be optimistic. Um, but what we've seen for the last, you know, decade plus is that these maps have not been beatable. Um, so what, we need to do short term, I think, is try to protect democracy as, as best we can. Um, there's going to be secretary of state races in places like Arizona and Georgia and Michigan that are going to be absolutely crucial because these are the folks who are going to be certifying elections in 2024. Um, when we vote in 2022, we've got to understand what the consequences are, uh, not just that year, but for the next four and not just at the top of the ballot, but up and down the ballot in, in every single position. Uh, there's going to be state Supreme Court elections in Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina that are going to determine the future of those states. Um, but that by determining the future of what the congressional delegations in those states look like could impact all of us. You know, um, and, and these Secretary of State races in these key states are, are just absolutely crucial. I mean, if you didn't have a Republican Secretary of State in Arizona, I'm sorry, in, in Georgia, and a Democratic Secretary of State in Arizona who uh, stood up in the face of um, you know, death threats yeah. uh, to certify close, close elections um, in those states in 2020, um, everything could have gone another way and still could go another way in 2024. Yeah. It seems to me like we need a groundswell of virtue and principle and commitment as citizens. I mean, the, you're right. These people arguably saved democracy a couple of years ago um, or less than a couple of years ago in the 2020 election. Um, and I hope that can spread and that the message can spread and you know, it's my hope that conversations like this and for the work that you have done, um, that it can resonate and that you will do many more such conversations like this in the interim to get the word out. Because I think it starts with education and with honesty. Um, and I really appreciate you having this conversation with me about that because it's, I think it really matters. And um, I, I want to thank you again for your work and, and mostly for the time today too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for your work. I, I appreciate the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.